Welcome to the Advocacy Podcast, Journeys to Excellence. We speak with Queen's Counsel, trial lawyers and judges from around the world about how they excel in the courtroom. Please subscribe on your favourite podcast platform and visit us for additional resources at theadvocacypodcast.com. I'm your host, BB Badejo. In this episode, the Honourable Justice Anne Ainsley Wallace reflects on how advocates succeed and how they fail to persuade her as an appeal court judge in Sydney, Australia. We cover how advocacy training has shifted to focus more squarely on developing a strong case theory. Finally, Anne shares her tips for effective witness handling, emphasising distilling questions and propositions to what is absolutely necessary. Hello, Anne. Hi, Bibi. How are you today? I'm not bad, thank you. I think the time is probably better for me than for you. <laughs> yes, it's quite early in the morning, but an absolute pleasure to interview you today. So, Anne, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself for our listeners, please? I'm a, presently a judge of appeal in the Family Court of Australia, which is a federal court. And we hear appeals from the Family Court and the Federal Circuit Court uh, in exercising their family law jurisdiction. And before that, I was a judge of the District Court, your Crown Court, and I sat in criminal trials and civil trials and medical tribunals for 13 years before I did that. And I'm the chair of the Australian Advocacy Institute. So let's talk about before you became a judge. How would you describe yourself as a younger advocate? Oh, terrifying for everybody. When I came to the bar, there was no training at all in advocacy. There was the firm view that advocates were born and not made. No one ever told us what to do we were just given a brief and we I took myself off to court and frankly I can't imagine how I got through as many cases as I did without having someone throw me out of court for incompetence I had no idea what I was doing and there was no teaching no one ever turned their mind to showing new advocates what to do I suspect I was terrifying both for my client and um, for the judge and clearly that changed just before... I'd like to... You'd like to think so. I'd like to think so. I'd like to think so. What steps did you take, really, to improve? Was it a proactive action that you took in order to pr- improve your advocacy, or was this just something that developed as you got more and more experienced? I think it developed. It was trial and error of the most appalling kind... I've always been given to self-criticism. So I would come back from court and agonise about why it all went wrong or why some parts were better than others. And over time developed an, an understanding of how things could be done better. I talked a lot to colleagues and so on, but it was very much trial and error and not very sophisticated. <laughs> was there anything that came to you naturally? that you were quite comfortable with? I was a really good cross-examiner. I don't know why, but I was very good at cross-examining. So at least you had that to <laughs> rely on, even though you didn't feel um, <laughs> as confident in other areas. Yeah. And I also wondered, did you see many advocates that really impressed you? And if they impressed you, did you try and emulate that as well? Regrettably for me, as one does, 
I had more and more exposure to really seriously good advocates as I got on. Even as a junior barrister, I had some wonderful briefs being led by some of the great advocates of Australia. But regrettably, I didn't appreciate the full effects of their advocacy because, like many new advocates, I didn't. I knew what I was seeing was wonderful, but I didn't know why. I didn't know why it was wonderful. A couple of them were marvellous, would say, now, did you see I asked the questions in this order? I did that because, and that was wonderful. But more often than not, I knew I was watching a, a stellar performance, but I didn't really know how they got to that place. As I got more senior myself and understood much more about advocacy, I had the great pleasure of seeing, working with or working against some of the great advocates. In your um, progression, did you also use any other resources? Because I know you said that there weren't any training, but were there books or any courses, anything at all? There was nothing. There was nothing at all. You were able to watch. I used to spend a lot of time watching advocates and trying to analyse what they did. Spending a lot of time thinking about my case after the event. And I'd like to talk about that perhaps later on, about the benefit of self-reflection. Talking to my contemporaries about which is the better way, what is the better way to do things. So it, But it was all self-taught because there was no other way. It wasn't actually until I started to do some advocacy training that it all became gloriously clear. So if we move now to the period just before you were appointed to the bench, and I don't know if this is a bit of a difficult question because as... As senior advocate, you're a lot more experienced. But looking back now, in the period just before you became a judge, is there anything that you now see that you could have improved on, even though you were incredibly experienced? Looking back at myself, I should have understood that less is more. I think I would have been advantaged by saying less. Can you give us an example of that? Because I know for me... I understand conceptually, but when it comes to applying it, I'm not entirely sure what that means. I think it's about knowing when you have done enough. And I was aware of it at that stage because what I used to do was take a post-it note and put it on my notes and write, stop. I'd worked out a point in my certainly cross-examination, but very definitely submissions when I thought... I had covered all the points and I would write stop. As a consumer of advocacy now, there is nothing more unpersuasive than having someone repeat themselves. I think that was a late dawning, that was late dawning realisation for me. I should have thought of that earlier. Since you've become a judge, what mistakes do you see that other barristers make when they come before you? Talking about first instance work, I think the thing that I see most often is a lack of clarity about the case theory, where they're going. An ideal case theory is one that informs your submissions, your submissions informs your evidence. But I think too many people don't look back at the case theory and say, do I need all of this? Are all of these points good? Which are my best points? Which are my weakest points? Can I lose the weak points? and still maintain the strength of the good points. And so what you see is a cross-examination that makes some good points 
and then drifts off into weak points, silly points. I think they have the effect of draining the the power from the good points. And if I could teach everybody that one thing, once you've got your case theory, once you have your submissions, you need to say, do I need to say all of that? Are they all equally good? I like to think of it as the barrister's being distracted by something shiny. Oh, here's something that might be good to submit on. Oh, there's something else. I love that. And I'm going to remember that definitely (laughs) when I'm preparing my cases. So as a judge, obviously, you're not advocating for a particular side. So you're not going to be creating a case theory of your own. But what is your process for preparation? Because of course, it will differ to when you were a barrister. And I work in an affidavit court. So what everybody has to say is on before we start. So I like to read what's been filed and identify the issues that I think will be raised. And hopefully then at the start of the case, reach an agreement between the bar table and me about what are the issues to be run. And that's very helpful in a number of ways. It means that we're all following the same path, but it means everybody stays on track. And so if a cross-examination drifts off, you can say, well, which issue does this go to? How is this how is this assisting? And it keeps everybody online. Not everybody is as comfortable with that as others. But I identify the issues. And then when you hear the evidence, sort the evidence against the issues. Of course, the great persuaders are those who deal with the issues in a contained way, as opposed to a few questions about issue A, then a few questions about issue three, and and so on. And you're left struggling to pull it all together at the end. Obviously, Judges do intervene, they ask questions as they're supposed to. How do you find um, a lot of barristers respond to that when they're before you? If I can make a disclosure, I talk too much. I talk too much in trials. In appeals, it's fine because we're talking about a point of law or the applicability of particular authorities and so on. I don't do many trials nowadays. And I'm pretty sure I talk too much. I'm pretty sure I'm pretty irritating. Where are you going? I don't understand that question and so on. I don't think counsel like it. <laughs> but I try, to, I try to stop. I don't mean to be irritating. <laughs> As an appeal judge, if we can just focus on that for now, then I, I am going to come back to trials and, and your advocacy training. When you get written submissions or briefs as our American counterparts call them, what are you looking for? I'm looking for clarity. I want to understand what the appeal challenges are. In a written submission, I want an explanation. The judge erred in failing to take into account this evidence. It's material because, and so on. That's in the written argument. And later on, I see you want to talk about the difference between the written argument and the oral argument. But what what we look at as appeal judges is how the argument is developed in the written grounds so that we can start preparing, we can read ahead, we can look at the cases so that when we start the appeal, we're mostly against the same background of authority. And written submissions that don't expose the argument just make the job harder. 
So what do you think the key is to having a comprehensive document that contains all the key issues and provides clarity, but is still concise? Because I know that you will not appreciate a 100-page document when 15 or 20 pages could do. Well, we have page limits. Oh, great. (laughs) We have a 15-page limit, which, of course, drives people to be concise. But what I look for is, as I say, an exposure of the grounds. This is the error. This evidence wasn't taken into account. It was important because, etc. bit like you would make in a closing argument in a trial. You need to expose the point. And it's in the written argument that you can outline the, the authorities. If you feel you need to quote from a bit of the authority, you can put it in there. Because when you come to make the oral argument, it's something different. Is there anything in particular that you find um, persuasive? Because obviously a narrative of the facts and there's no analysis doesn't help. But what do you find persuasive in the written argument? I think an understanding that what you're saying to the judge is this. This is the ground. This is how that error fits into the overall case. This is why we say it's an error these are the authorities. What we often get is a long exposition of the background facts, a long exposition about what the trial judge found, and very little about the ground and the particulars. For my point, what is persuasive in a written argument is getting to the point without the blather, without the background, without the traipsing through the trial judge's reasons, because we've read them. And now, as you you mentioned, I'm going to ask about this. What is your tip, really, for speaking effectively to written submissions? There's no point in reading out what you you wrote, because the judges can read faster than you can speak anyway. Correct. So how can we effectively speak to those submissions that we've sent in? I think you can effectively speak to them by picking, if you like, the best point in relation to each ground, identify it, and be interesting about it. When I say be interesting, don't repeat what you've written, but say something about the ground. For example, a material issue that the trial judge had to decide was the probability of an event occurring. Nowhere in the reasons did the trial judge consider it. Let me give you an example. And you take an example that you haven't written about. You might pick your best example or the clearest example. So what we have is the written document that we can take back, refer to as we're writing. But the written argument really exposes the forward momentum of the appeal. Some really good advocates don't talk about the grounds in a structured way, but talk about the effect of the error. If this error is unremedied, then... That's really interesting. I'd never thought of that. Also, for me, I mean, appellate advocacy (laughs) seems very frightening. And I'll tell you one of the reasons why we had touched on this earlier with judicial intervention and the asking of questions. And I have two here, the first being, how can one prepare in advance for the questions that a judge might ask? And the second question is, On the day, there might be questions that you didn't even expect. So how as barristers and I'll say appellate lawyers, how do we um, deal with those? 
Right. I think the answer to good advocacy at any level is to understand what interests the listener. And the great failure of some advocates is that they make the points they're interested in. They spend their time on arguments they're interested in and they never think, if I was the judge, what point is going to trouble me most? What point is going to interest me most? So if you start thinking about the listener, the judge or the judges or the jury, then you start to anticipate the sorts of things that they might be concerned about. And if I can give you a literal example from my time in the criminal court, I was hearing sentences one day and a really good advocate, I read the papers and he stood up and he said, I know what's troubling you. And I thought to myself, I bet you don't. And he did. And he knew it because he'd thought about it. When he had read the documents, he thought, what would what would bother a sentencing judge most about these facts? And he addressed those. And he addressed the thing that I was bothered about really comprehensively. Now, that did two things. It immediately addressed my concerns, so I wasn't, if you like, thinking about that while he was making other submissions. He was interested in meeting my needs and... I was interested in listening to how he was going to do that. And it was a lovely piece of advocacy. And that's what all advocates should strive for. So the answer to the question is, how can you prepare for questions? Anticipate what you think might bother the judge or interest the judge. Or what might be a question that might be slightly off-piste. You know, if you're citing authorities that haven't been used for a while or authorities from other, other jurisdictions, for example you can anticipate that the judges are going to say, well, what's the relevance of these to what we're doing? But if you think about the listener, that's how you anticipate the questions. Questions that you haven't anticipated, I think the answer is pause, think about the question, and if you really can't answer it, ask for a little time. No judge is going to say, no, I insist that you... (laughs) You fill the air with meaningless blather instead of answering the question. And sometimes, certainly my own experience was, if you say, I can't answer that now, can I come back to it? The judge forgets about it. Ask for time. No one's ever going to deny you five minutes to collect your thoughts or 10 or after morning tea or whatever. But ultimately, you you do have to answer the question. If they remember, you do have yeah. to answer the question directly. But questions are good. If a judge is asking you questions, it means they're engaged, they're listening, they're interested in what you've got to say. As an advocate, there was nothing worse than standing there making your submissions you know, cr- that you'd spent hours crafting to a completely dead, sort of dead, dead air. Much better to have someone asking you questions. Why do you say that? How does that fit with paragraph so-and-so? You're the um, chair of the Australian Advocacy Institute, the AAI. Um, What do you hope to achieve as chair? I hope to continue the work of the previous chair and encourage advocates to think about what they do, to strive to be better advocates, to understand that training doesn't stop once you've started your professional career, but that advocacy skills training should be something that you do throughout your career as an advocate. Because every time you 
you can never stop learning. There's, you can always get better. We've had conversations before about, um, a few conversations before about the techniques and the type of advocacy training that the AAI um, provide within, within its programs. And it's, for me, I can see it definitely being a forerunner. Um, what are the new sorts of techniques um, that are used within the um, programs that you run? Say, for example, trial advocacy. What we have in the last few years done is we spend much more time talking about case theory. Case theory has always been an important part of training in any sort of structured training sense. But there there were two changes that we've made in the last few years. The first is it's not enough to talk to people about case theory. You must have one. You can't really prepare properly unless you have one. But my own experience, and I suspect the experience of many advocates, is how do you know a case theory when you see it? How do you know if your case theory is good? used to be people would say, oh, you'll know it when you see it, which isn't terribly helpful. So we've developed a session that we do as as in the introductory session is not only talking about what a case theory is, but we do a small exercise where we develop a case theory with the group of participants who are there. We divide the room in half, half prosecution, half defence. And through argument between us all, we develop a case theory for that particular little exercise. In my view, that has been so helpful in in assisting uh, advocates to understand what it what it does look like when you when you get it um, and we focus much more now on the development of case theory because I think it's widely accepted in advocacy circles that cases are lost with an inadequate inadequately thought out case theory they're rarely lost by the the occasional dud question in evidence in chief or the occasional leading non-leading question in cross-examination Many cases are lost because people haven't thought through the case theory completely or, heaven forbid, at all. So that's where, we, that's where our focus is. And in fact, we've run, last year, we ran a discrete case analysis workshop where the focus of the, the workshop was the development of a case theory, its implementation in cross-examination, and then a discussion. And we did that with two case theories over a day. That's excellent because, um, as you were saying, um, being able to develop a case case theory as a group probably highlights so much to other people that they've never even thought about. Uh, <laughs> and um, of course, of course, it does. And when I think of how how I train and I have been trained, there's so much focus on the witness handling, the examination in chief, cross examination closing speeches you can see where you've gone wrong but you're kind of left to go and deal with the case theory by yourself you don't even talk about it with the participants so um the foundation it seems to me can sometimes be shaky because no one's talked to you about that so that's really amazing correct and i and i think also you get to a point in your advocacy when you're a bit embarrassed to say look, I don't know what a case theory is or I don't know how to achieve one or I don't know what it looks like when I have one. Um, 
And there are as many ways of developing a case theory as there are types of advocates. But I think if um, in a group, which is far less confrontational than one-on-one, if participants have a chance to throw ideas around, um, suggest arguments that might be made on the evidence, and then have the other side say, well, you might say that, but we're going to say, say this, really get an idea of how the case theory works on the ev- works with the evidence. And in that same workshop, we then um, take the case theory and turn it into the submissions, the closing argument. Because the, the, the real foundation of good advocacy is a, a, a good, detailed case theory that has translated to your closing argument. And with these courses that you do, is it open to, well, anyone who is in um, Australia at the time, of course, can attend. But I... <laughs> well, well, well now, that we, now that we have started to do Zoom work, we're doing our first Zoom workshop next week, maybe we could take participants if you're prepared to get up early and very early in the morning. Oh, yeah. Well, I would be. So um, I will definitely look, at, look into that. Um, what I was wondering about was um, the the level of experience with practitioners because you had mentioned that you know there are some people who are embarrassed to say do you know what I don't know what a case theory is so yeah, do you have um, experienced practitioners coming to these things and if so what sort of we do what sort of challenges as a as an advocacy trainer do you face when you have people who've, who've developed their own habits and ways of advocacy of course well first of all you have to you have to cut through the perfectly understandable but almost always present I don't know why I'm here. I've been winning cases. <laughs> I've been winning cases for years and so on. Um, but I think with the more experienced advocates, the fact that they come, I think, is an outstanding thing to do. Uh, and really with the more experienced practitioners, what we're doing is not t- training them, but we're tweaking what can be a very good very good advocacy. It can be a matter sometimes of nuance. It can be a matter of um, looking at things they've done and perhaps thinking they got into bad habits or maybe to just change their way. But for the more experienced advocate, we tend to approach um, training with them as um, unpacking and having a look at what we do to see whether there are things we could do more efficiently, more effectively, or is there some nuance nuance changed change that they could manage and I know that you have traveled um all over to teach advocacy and we met actually in Keeble um college in Oxford um yeah that that is exactly where where we met for the first time and is do you find that there any particular challenges language barrier aside um are there any particular challenges in teaching people from other jurisdictions or from other practice areas at all the great joy of advocacy training is that it's it's always the same. The uh, the issues that arise in cross examination arise no matter where you teach. Um, the anxieties that participants have are the same. Um, it really is uh, a consistent. There's a consistency across no matter where you teach. No, I mean, obviously, I say closing argument and you say speeches um, about which I have a philosophical difficulty, but but you'll never change, nor will I, um, because it's not a speech, it's an argument. 
But apart from things, you know, quirky things like that, no, there's no difference. Also, how do you think that experienced trial lawyers who who don't have the opportunity to go to um, the courses either in person or, or by Zoom, how can they identify their own bad habits or other areas for improvement if they can't get feedback? I think it's in my day, in my day before there was any training, and I think if people can't or feel uncomfortable about doing workshops, there is the, the greatest way of measuring performance, and indeed I think it's the way advocates improve, is to do what most advocates hate to do, which is have a really hard look at themselves and, and critically analyse what it is that they did. Um, we know, having been a, a, as advocates, you win a case, you're a genius. You lose a case, had nothing to do with you. Um, <laughs> and people often say to me, well, how do you get better? How do you practice, how do you practice advocacy skills? Um, of course, you don't practice them in court. But I think the way of improving is to come out of court and look at what you have done against what you had anticipated doing or looking at the questions or going back over your case theory and asking yourself, was there some way I could have improved? Or why did that examination not go as well as I wanted? I can see now it was the form of the questions or I hadn't properly prepared for that issue. And it's self, it's critical self-reflection I think that makes good advocates best. Within that critical self-reflection, it, I think one thing it might highlight for some people is that A, the case theory wasn't sound at all or incomplete. And um, I know quite a few, few lawyers who admit to not preparing their closing speech in advance and, um, or, or maybe just a brief, brief outline. And I was just wondering if, if people don't do that, because of course, it is front-loading, really thinking about the entire case and not having your closing submissions. Do you think that that suggests that they don't really have a good case theory and things can go a bit wrong in court or does it not matter when you prepare your closing? I think it's so fundamentally important to have prepared for every step, every question, every word before you go into court. I can't imagine not doing it. I wonder whether the people who say I don't prepare a case theory in fact do but not in a formal way. Part of the part of the analysis of a case and the development of a case theory is thinking about the other side's arguments. I have this piece of evidence, what are the other side going to say about it? Well they'll say that, how will I be, how will I meet that? Well I have this other witness and so on. So maybe those who say they don't have a case theory, in fact have thought critically about the evidence in a way that allows them to, in effect, have a case theory. Of course, if they're always unsuccessful and they always come out of court having had some horrible surprise or <laughs> having something go horribly wrong, perhaps it should be a, a lesson to take a bit more time. <laughs> but I do think that unless you have really analysed the case as far as you possibly can think and develop a case theory, then you're not making it easy for yourself or your client for that matter. I think one thing that I found as I became more experienced and learned a lot more about the technique of advocacy training 
or advocacy rather, um, was that developing a case theory fully takes time. Do you think that people underestimate how, how much time it takes? Because, of course, you... you always. Always, okay. <laughs> I saw in your questions the suggestion that people go and, um, if you like, try out their case theory on someone else. I'm not so... I'm not persuaded of that. But what I used to do would conduct an internal argument with myself when I was driving the car, when I was taking the children to school, when I was doing something that wasn't work, and I would argue the case with myself. I would make the proposition I was going to make in closing argument, let's say about a piece of evidence, and argue with myself the reasons why that evidence should be accepted. And then I would argue what the other side, the other side's case. But they'll say this. So I have to, I have to bring in this point. And it's that constant internal dialogue, if you like, that internal argument, I think, that is the way to develop the case theory. And you can, you can do it when you're driving the children to school, which is always helpful to have something distract you from, from <laughs> what's going on in the back seat. <laughs> or on the bus or you know in the train all those things um, and looking at I love what you said there because that's really a brilliant way of testing if your case theory is sound and I know for me I'm alerted to the fact that my case theory might not be as developed if for example I ask a question that's not as focused as it could be when I reflect I think ah if I tighten that bit of my case theory, then that question, I, I would have broken down the question in this way and, and I can reflect and what I hope is improve for, for the, next, um, the next case. And another question that flows from that really is when you're considering the strengths and weaknesses of your case and your opponent's case, um, what, what do you see as pitfalls really for lots of barristers that have come before you where they, they don't, they haven't done it f- enough well or they ignore their weak points uh, hoping okay. that hoping that hoping that no one will notice well who's the first person who's going to notice their weak points the other side um it's a it's it's a part i mean it's ent- entirely understandable human nature to to turn your face away from your weaknesses but you know the other side's going to be they're going to be all over them my advice is to acknowledge do there two things Work out the point in your argument or your submissions where you can raise your weak point, but you have surrounded it by solid points, strong points for you. Of course, he has a criminal record. There's no getting away from that. But if you look at the evidence of so-and-so that demonstrates his fine work, attendance, and so on. So I call it acknowledging and diffusing. But you have to you have to be a bit clever about where you put it, but you also have to make sure that the weak point is in the midst of such good points that it doesn't look quite as bad as that. I think the people who who let themselves down are the people who 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 list their weaknesses perhaps at the end of submissions and then don't say anything about them. Yes. Because it's obvious not to start with your weaknesses, because <laughs> that's no good. Oh no! <laughs> but definitely start with your weaknesses. <laughs> but, def- but don't ignore them either, and and don't end with them. I suppose is 
the key thing. <laughs> um, just moving on to uh, what I call speeches, you call arguments, other people might call submissions. Yes. <laughs> what was your approach to um, preparing and delivering them? So you've, you've, you've got it in writing, perhaps. I don't know if that's how you did it. But um, how, did, how did you go about um, preparing to deliver that argument? You're quite right. I used to write them out as I was thinking about them. And then I would distill them to sentences. And then I would distill the sentences to points. So I would have a list of points. And then I would sort them out as to what is my best point, because you always like to start with that. Uh, and then, but more particularly, how many of those points do I need? And it's the culling. It's that critical analysis of of the points do they all drive in the same direction are they all in pursuit of the same ultimate submission are they all go do you need them all and heavens are they internally consistent um but i, I think it's that constant um analysis constant reflection is that do i really need to say this probably not because of course what you want is to make submissions of such elegant simplicity that the judge can walk off the bench and probably distill them into a sentence for someone else. That's what you strive for, to make it simple and plain. Are there any um, particular ways that you, or any, any particular steps that you go through to distill it and make it simple and plain? Because I know a lot of the work that we get it's complex. It can be really complex. So, and as lawyers, we'll make it even more complex if you let us. So um, going, in the other <laughs> going, going in the other direction, um, what are the key things that we can have in mind in order to simplify? Um, or I'll, is it simplify? I don't want to oversimplify the matter, but just make it, distill it so it is simple and clear. Clear. You need to be clear. So plain language simple words, short sentences. Uh, in, in fact, I, I appeared as junior to one of, I regard, one of the greatest appellate advocates in Australia. And when we started, he handed me one piece of paper that had 23 sentences on it. The first was, I appear. The last was, you know, I have nothing more to say. And each sentence was clear, plain language. He'd won the day by about sentence 10. But what he'd done was distill really complex issues of jurisprudential, um, years of jurisprudential difficulties and confusion into these sentences. Now, that took an enormous amount of work, but that's what made him great. Uh, and if you can give yourself the time to think about the complex issues and try and bring clarity to them um, no matter what the case even a tax case I feel sure could be couched in a in a clear way but it, I think part of it is simple language uh, plain language I think what you've said goes a long way to answering my next question and the reason why I ask this is I confess there have been at least one occasion where I have been making submissions and I've actually bored myself. And I, I, 
<laughs> and I dread to think, well, the poor judge was um, thinking and also my, my opponent. So how do you deliver something that sounds interesting but still has substance and isn't boring for the listener? <laughs> Be interested. Be interested. The one way of stopping yourself being boring is to actually be interested in what you're saying. And that goes back to the craft. The, the, you know, the, the craft is developing the submissions. The art is being interested in them. Um, we've, all been, we've all been bored uh, in court. If you're interested in what you're saying, that of itself makes them interesting. And if you strive for um, efficiency, so don't say things twice. Um, ask yourself, have I said enough? What more needs to be said? But if you are interested, you will be interesting. Thank you. <laughs> and I don't think advocates should ever be, ever be scared of um, plain language. It's bad when children are mistreated. Um, my husband punched me every evening when he came home from work. We don't hear that enough. We hear I was a victim of family violence. Um, you know, there's nothing wrong with a str strong, plain language. Nothing conveys the point better, I say. But lawyers tend to shrink from it. I think law lawyers like to think that if they use big lawyery words, they sound clever. I, I agree with that. <laughs> Definitely. And also what I found, and this, probably, this might not work for everyone else, is I now start shying away from adverbs and adjectives. And I just get to try and get to the point. Um, a lot of the time, for example, you know, my husband was abusive. It's so much more impactful for you to say, my husband punched me X amount of times on these dates. You really get the vivid picture as opposed to he was abusive and why do why do we quail why do we quail from saying that is it our sensitivities is it the court sensitivities or are we distancing ourselves from the argument do we use those they're not euphemisms but do we use those expressions to hide behind so we're not actually engaging with the argument I don't know. I don't know. Um, but I, I, I think about it a lot, why many advocates use words that actually cripple their submissions as opposed to um, ease them along the way. So moving along to examination in chief or direct examination for our American listeners, um, what mistakes have you seen lawyers um, make when they are um, asking questions in examination in chief? And how do you think they can be remedied? Before, if I may, before we are, I answer that, can can we talk about what it is? Because I think, yes, in order to be good at it, examination in chief is that witness's account of an event or a series of events. The reason why we ask non-leading questions is that we want that witness's account to be in his or her own words and in his or her own voice. Because what they, what, not only what they say, but how they say it, adds to the, the impact of their evidence. But they're also telling a story, no matter what it is, not, you know, whether it's personal injuries or tax or contract, 
they have something to say in their own words. So that's what we're doing. We're telling a story or part of a story. How do you make that interesting? Well, it's not a shopping list. So the council doesn't stand there and ask, you know, non-leading question as if ticking off a shopping list. There's a lot of work to be done. In what order am I going to get the witness to tell the story? Where am I going to start? What? How am I going to finish? Will I break it into... Will I? How will I break it up? But the key to it is to ask the questions and sound interested. Because if the examiner sounds interested in the answers, then the judge or the jury will sound interested. So it's about making an effort. We've all seen with the greatest of respect to our prosecuting police prosecuting colleagues or even our you know DPP prosecuting colleagues who say words to this effect officer turn and face the jury and in a loud clear voice read from your statement from paragraph 4 um which is probably one of I'm sure it's a circle of hell one of Dante's circles of hell having to sit and listen to that but if you as the advocate take the, make the effort to make it interesting then it's a good examination in chief. And the mistake is to treat it as if it were just a, a shopping list or a, a list of a list of bits of evidence that you, the judge may or may not be interested in. I think that's the mistake. Are there any exercises or, or steps that lawyers can take in order to sharpen their examination in chief skills? Sure. Take a... Well... Take a scenario. It doesn't matter what it is. It can be how I started my day, what I had for breakfast, something completely banal. Break it up into points. For example, what I did first, what happened then, and so on. Then write down all of the answers that you want, all of the evidence. 7.15, alarm whatever and then using that list turn that into non-leading questions and make yourself sound interested so if you like turn it back on yourself make the list in and in an order that you want the evidence to come out in and practice asking the questions in that order it sounds i know it sounds slightly might sound completely fatuous but in my view it works absolutely I completely agree I think sometimes I feel (laughs) slightly deflated at the amount of work that we we are required to do but once you start doing it and practicing it it's it becomes so natural and it's definitely well worth investing that time in preparing your cases now moving over to cross-examination which I love and I remember you saying you were you're quite good at um, I, I suppose for, for a lot of people I know that they're worried about cross-examination um, are there obvious ways that you can tell that it's ineffective For exa- and I know for me judges would interrupt me all the time but what's, what's your point? <laughs> Here's, this is where I make my podcast confession that was me not so long ago and as I was doing it I was hating myself um, <laughs> the, a judge inter- interrupting could be just a judge who didn't understand. 
But the other thing is not all judges were good cross-examiners. So a judge interrupting might be a judge interrupting. But an interrupting judge doesn't mean that you're losing the judge. I think the better test is if the witness is running away with you, if you're not getting what you want, if you're having to go back and back and re if you like, come at the same point again and again, that's a much better test of how the cross-examination is going. And like everything in advocacy, it comes back to the preparation for the point. Um, And I make a list again. Make a list, have a topic, make a list of the answers you want with the propositions you're going to put, put those, move on to the next. So it's a list And each proposition has one point that can be answered yes or no, and then you move on. As you were saying, um, with witnesses that are just running, running away, not answering the question the way that you you want them to do so. um, Do you have any tips for controlling the witness? And I know one of the very difficult witnesses that you can cross-examine is that really nice witness who's neutral but not giving you what you want. Maybe they can't remember. And, and so on. How do you suggest that we deal with those when we come across them? I think it all comes back to the port, the question. And I call it a question, but we all know we're talking about a proposition that you put to the witness for agreement or disagreement. If you're only putting a proposition with one point in it that can be answered yes or no, it's very difficult for a witness to run away. They will try, but you're entitled to come back and keep putting that proposition until you get your answer or you think the judge or the jury get the idea that the witness has no intention of answering it. And some might argue that then, at least in in that issue, your job is done. Um, the The vague can't recall, you... If you haven't anticipated the witness is going to be like that, you may have to do more subsidiary points. So if you might have gone to, let's say, the afternoon of the 14th of July, you might have to go a bit back before that. You had a blue car. It was parked on the side of the road. You had parked it there to do the shopping it was in summer, it was the 14th of July. So you might have to break up your points into smaller propositions. Um, but it all comes down to the question. And I say probably irritatingly when I'm training, when ad- ad- advocates say, oh, the witness ran away with me, I don't, you know, what what's wrong? And I said, the question. There's no, it's not a bad answer, it's a bad question. Compound too many points, etc. Sounds a bit preachy, Indeed. I know. Sorry. It's the, yeah, but it's, a, it's the truth. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think <laughs> more, more often than not. Um, and what about when the, when the witness, when the witness is um, lying, or it's, it's clear to you that they're lying? Um, is, there, is there not really much that we can do about that? Or um, how can we pin them down for that? You win the case... In submissions, you don't win the case with the witness in in cross-examination. And I think that's really important to remember. Cross-examination is only a part of it. A lot of advocates try to either persuade the person they're cross-examining 
that they're wrong and the and the advocate's right, or get the witness to agree with their client, the opposition's complexion of the case, or to to say, oh, you're right, I'm a liar, I'm terribly sorry, I've wasted everybody's time. Now, we know that will never happen. Um, if you have prepared for that witness, you're putting propositions that have their, that, that are found in other evidence that you can demonstrate through other witnesses, then it's in submissions that you do the work against the liar. But I think you just plug on. You, you, you put the points and then deal with it in submissions. Can I ask you about inconsistencies? Because um, people, in its life, people are inconsistent. Um, would you agree that, that there's just no point in putting absolutely every single inconsistency that a witness has made to them? And perhaps what you should do is just decide what the key ones are and then go for it. What, what do you think about that? I think that's a that's, I think that's an excellent point. You have to ask yourself, what does it mean? Does it, is that person lying and can't remember his or her story, or are they dopey, um, or are they really can't remember? So you need to work out whether the in- inconsistencies are material. Can you make something of them? If there are a couple that you can, go for those. Um, but really, in in more often than not, it seems to me witnesses don't come to court and set out to lie their heads off. They might have a different version of events to your client. But uh, I think to put endless, you know, you said this on this day and then you said this on that day, if they don't move the case on, I don't think it's very persuasive. But it comes back to what I said earlier about looking at the points you want to make in cross-examination and asking yourself, is this driving my case theory forward? Is this helping me to make the submissions at the end? And if the answer is no, leave it behind. Leave it alone. You've mentioned a number of questions which are so brilliant in getting you to, um, or rather getting one to have really have a think about their case theory and be refle- reflective and also, also take a step away from, from the case and look at it all in the round. But I was just wondering, are there three key practical tips for listeners that you can give for them to improve their advocacy never stop thinking about your case never stop arguing the other side's cases you apprehended you can never prepare too much and plain language simple concepts Um, and you've mentioned self-agonising about your um, cases previously. And I know that this is something, well, self-reflection is what you have done throughout. Did it become um, more of a process that became easy with time or was it always an agonising <laughs> ordeal for you? <laughs> oh, well, it's really a pleasant experience to look back on the day in court and critically analyse what you've done and see on reflection, the errors you've made or the where you've been sloppy or where you've deviated from your case theory. But I went from agonising in an intellectual vacuum when I started at the bar to understanding what I was meant to do and recognising when I hadn't done it. And I think that that was the most helpful thing. 
I learned. Um, so when when you came out of court and I, I said to myself, why did that witness get away from me? I could reflect and say, well, that's because my questions were broad. My questions had a number of propositions in them. Uh, and I won't do that again. But it's it's always helpful, but never happy. And you pioneered the role of counsel, um, separately representing children in family cases. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Because um, for family practitioners, and I am one, um, this is something that that happens a lot more frequently. So it really is um, a amazing to speak to you about that, given given the work that you have done around that area. But um, yeah, please tell us a bit more about that. When the Family Law Act came in in 1975, it acknowledged that children could have a separate a representative separate from their parties and in the early 80s judges started making appointments uh to 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 have children represented and the, the it was done with legal aid legal aid provided the funding and uh the solicitors at legal aid briefed me to to start the work of appearing for children. Um, It was a marvellous privilege, of course, because you have a huge responsibility, but you also have, in a sense, the capacity to step between the parties, sometimes broker a deal, sometimes put the child's point of view, or the child's, not necessarily what the child said, but the child's position between the warring parents. Um, And sometimes we we managed to not so much broker deals but to bring about a fragile peace when the parents focused on the child rather than on on the war it was the most marvelous work there was no doubt about it i really felt as a lawyer i was doing something good well definitely it's it certainly changed uh, the landscape and also had a huge impact on a number of children did you find there was any um, resistance at all to that role as it develops, I know the the Family Law Act provided for it, but people people weren't using it that often. But so was there any resistance? I think judges loved it because, as a judge in a in a hard fought custody case or whatever, you do want that middle view given. You want someone who can uh, cross examine the parties and cross examine the experts from the child's perspective and it gives you the, a, a fuller picture of the evidence uh, and as a trial judge and in even in the district court um, I did children's cases as a trial judge to have that person representing the child's views marvellous thank you and are there any courses that you would recommend for um, practitioners to develop their either trial advocacy or appellate advocacy um, especially things that we can join in um, for international participants i would we run the australian advocacy institute we run courses for all levels and all types of practitioners so we have um, a very exciting appellate advocacy program which we've run quite a lot um in fact in one in one workshop the bench was the president of the court of appeal i think a judge of the high court and another judge of appeal and we had silks come 
and do the workshop. It was very exciting. It was exciting on a number of bases because it showed that Silks understood there was always capacity to get better. And the bench was, even in an advocacy training session setting, quite terrifying to be to have to have these amazingly skilled appellate judges uh, giving performance reviews to very senior silks. Each silk uh, said how much he or she got out of it. So we do um, appellate courses. Uh, generally speaking, our, our case studies are criminal case studies because they make such marvellous vehicles for uh, evidence-in-chief and and cross-examination so so we offer those courses um i'd love to think that we could have some international participants um come the the difficulty of course is the time the time difference so are there any books that you would recommend dan of course this the the advocacy manual which is produced by the australian advocacy institute i would recommend not only because we produced it but because we we produced the book not as a textbook full of theory of advocacy, but as a guide, a practical guide to advocacy. So it has a chapter on developing a case theory. It has a chapter on preparing evidence in chief. It has a chapter on preparing cross-examination. It also has chapters on uh, appellate advocacy, written submissions, it has chapters on prior inconsistent statements and so on. The idea of the manual is to give the advocate something he or she can have on the desk that can is an easy reference and it really is a mechanical guide. And I, I refer to it all the time, so I absolutely endorse that. <laughs> um, would you recommend the trial lawyers... Or even appellate advocates, any any lawyers really, would you recommend that they go to court and watch appeal hearings and, and trials if they can? Sure. Go to court and watch and but critically watch. Why did that work so well? Why do I think that evidence in chief was so interesting? Why was that cross-examination so tight? What was good about the submissions? Or conversely, why was that boring? Why did that not work? But I actually think if you have the time to go and watch other advocates, you can learn a lot. And I also think that advocacy is very much um, a process by which you see someone do something good and you take it for yourself and incorporate it into your own advocacy style and pretend that you've been doing it all along. You never acknowledge the person from whom you took the technique. <laughs> never. <laughs> yes, no credit given. <laughs> None whatsoever. Um, also, we've spoken about the length of time the case analysis and development of the case theory um, can take. But what about situations where you get those last minute briefs and, for example, um, your brief arrives at 6pm or 7pm and your case is at 10 the next morning. Um, how do you prioritise the points to develop and focus your preparation in the short amount of time that you have? I think the first thing to say is as you're reading the papers, you're asking yourself, what am I going to say to the jury about the case in general, 
And as you're reading the, the witness of the evidence, what am I going to say about this witness and this witness in, in, the, in the scheme of all of the witnesses? So as you're reading, you're thinking about your case theory. What are my submissions? What am I going to say about the credibility of the witness? And so on. In a criminal trial, you know what they are, you know what the prosecution's going to say. And so you at least and you have their evidence. So you're at least advantaged in that way. But from the moment you start reading, you start analysing. What does this mean? What am I going to say about it? Do I need to say anything about it? Then you get to the end and then you can go back and look at it again. Uh, we've all been there. It makes you, it, it's, a, it's a feeling that you don't necessarily want to go back to. But that's how we work. That's how advocates work, isn't it? Indeed. And yes, it's, it's amazing how quickly we can pick things up when uh, there's a time pressure. That's for sure. Um, and finally, Anne, where can our listeners connect with you online? Oh, I'm happy to email chat. Um, with listeners if they want to send me an email and you have my email address you I'm happy for you to put that on the website if anyone's interested in talking to an old appellate judge in Australia um, I'd be very happy to chat I'm very sure lots of people will be very willing to do that and it will be on the website which is the advocacy podcast com. so thank you very much for being our guest and sharing countless gems with us it's been incredibly helpful and i'm really grateful for you being here and thank you thank you bb it's been an enormous pleasure thank you for listening to the advocacy podcast journeys to excellence if you enjoyed the episode please subscribe and visit us at theadvocacypodcast.com for reading lists and other resources until next time